One of my earliest, fondest childhood memories of Christmas was that every year in this small town where I lived, down in California, only about 12,000 residents in the entire community, and right in the center of town, there were a lot of vacant lots, and each year, the Baptist church would put on a nativity story. And I loved it as a kid because here would be this wooden creche there with, you know, Mary and Joseph dressed in bathrobes and, and towels across their head. And they would uh, sometimes actually have an actual real baby that they had. But the best part were the horses and the donkeys and the peacocks and the chickens, whatever kind of wildlife they had, they brought it to the show. And we would watch these interact with each other as they would go through the story. And the thing that really was shocking to me when I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible, was that the, some of the details weren't exactly right. And I think one of the things that struck me the most was the particular story that we just read this evening, because it just didn't seem to make sense. I mean, God says, he sends these angels, this choir of angels saying, you know, there's a, the Christ, the Savior is born and he's going to appear to you and what you need to do is go look for a baby wrapped in claws inside of a manger. That's my sign to you. And I started thinking about, well, what kind of a sign would that be? I mean, you know, babies are fairly common at least at my house, they seem to come rather rapidly. Uh, why, why was this so distinct? Why would this catch somebody's attention? And when you begin to really ponder, you're left with one of two options. You can either decide that the story is fictional, made up, and doesn't make sense to our modern, more sophisticated minds, kind of what Lewis called our chronological snobbery, that somehow because we're still here and other people aren't, that we were smarter than them. Or maybe we're missing part of the story. And as I began to study it and look into it more deeply, I began to discover actually there's a whole lot of stuff being said in the passage that I just read that we wouldn't even connect with because they certainly weren't part of our world. We're, we're you know, 20 centuries removed from the first century and we don't understand the culture of the Middle East. We don't understand the culture of the biblical world. We don't understand Judaism, the rituals, the sacrifices, and all the things that went with it that are peppered all through this story that you and I reading it today would just go right over and not even catch them. And yet there are three things that really should stand out in our mind when we hear that story. The, the very first thing is we need to think about the place where it happened. Number two, we need to think about the people who are in the story. And number three, we need to understand the purpose behind this sign. You see, one of the things that the Bible says is that God was going to give signs. And, and signs basically are, well, it's not much different than the idea you're driving down the road and it says, you know, turn in here and eat at Joe's. It's the idea of saying this is a place where you need to go to get whatever it is you need. And God said what mankind needs is an answer to everything that's wrong in our lives. I mean, we live with kind of a presumption or at least a hope that somehow at some point it's all going to sink together and we're going to have that life that is perfect and well orchestrated. And, and, and when you get to a certain point chronologically, you have a choice of even saying my life was good or my life sucked. But nonetheless, that moment in which everything that is wrong is fixed never actually arrives. It never comes. 
There's always something that isn't quite right. There's always something that's kind of out of joint. There's always something that's broken. And we tell ourselves if we just think positively enough, we can overcome that. But the truth of the matter is that you can't. Because at some point, as just happened this evening for a friend of mine, went home to be with the Lord. His life came to an end. And you know, it's, I think, you know, I thought to myself, I was telling his widow, wow, how great to die on Christmas Eve. But I'm not sure that that was extremely comforting. The fact of the matter is, we live once and when we die, and the Bible says then comes judgment, accountability, answering for the life that we've lived under the sun for how many of years we have. And that realization is something that has haunted humanity since the earliest times. As far as back as we can go into the ancient histories, we find that people were religious and they were religious for a reason because they realized that there was a terminal reality to their existence. Then a sense when we hear of a friend who has a serious illness and we hear that it's terminal, it's kind of misleading because the reality is we all are. It means there is a termination point. And men have always been aware of that. Death has been more present in their world than it is in ours. We tend to treat it so cosmetically and so abstractly that we can kind of kid ourselves. You know, I've, I've done, I don't know how many thousands of funerals over the years, and I see when the, the body is laying in their casket, and I hear people going by and saying, oh, he looks so lifelike. Well, really, no, <laughs> he doesn't, he's not breathing anymore, and he's not here anymore. And people have been able to face that reality since the beginning of time. And so we find that every religion has a system, has a hope, has a plan, has a program that if you connect A and B and C and D, then you do this, then maybe you'll be able to experience something wonderful after this life to make up for the things in this life that weren't always all that wonderful. And so as we look at the story that is related here, it's easy for us to look at it as being another one of those such fables. And yet when we begin to unpack the story, some things really do kind of stand out. First of all, where did it take place? Well, it says it took place in Bethlehem. We know that Micah the prophet said that the Messiah would come to Bethlehem that he would be born there, that he was from ancient times, that says he was from old. He, he was going to be coming into this world, but he was going to come from an eternal place other than this world. And he was going to enter into our world and live in and operate amongst us. And he came to those specific fields outside of, we call them the shepherd's field, and we think it's because the story talks about shepherds being in the field, but these fields just weren't any ordinary fields. From these fields, it was only four miles to the temple in Jerusalem. And we know from the Jewish Talmud, it says, according to the rabbis, that any lamb or sheep that was in that area was dedicated for the temple. It was dedicated to be sacrificed. So that when we look at these shepherds, we need to begin to realize these were not just ordinary shepherds. And this has been confusing to historians because generally shepherds in the Middle East were always kind of a, a questionable characters. You know, they, if they passed through town, anything that wasn't hot or nailed down tended to disappear. 
And so people weren't excited to see the shepherds. They were lewd, crude fellows of the baser sort who didn't really follow the law because they were busy caring for sheep and not doing things that they were supposed to. They were kind of like our cowboys were in the last century. And so people say, well, shepherds, I mean... Why would he appear to shepherds? And we often say, well, it's because he wants to appear to the lowliest of all. He loves us all and he'll appear to anybody. But in fact, these shepherds were Levitical shepherds. They had one very specific job. It was to raise and care for these sheep that needed to be raised for purposes of sacrifice in the temple. These were quite literally referred to as the lambs of God. They were God's lambs. They had to be perfect. In fact, they had to be without any spot or without blemish, especially in the Passover. They had to be under a year old. And they had to be a male. And they had to be the firstborn male. Now, a Jew of the first century would have been reading Luke's account and would have gone, oh my goodness, Jesus was of the line of David. He was born in Bethlehem. And he was lauded by shepherds who were tasked with raising the sheep for the temple. And what's interesting is when a lamb was born, they weren't just born anywhere. They had a place that's actually the Hebrew word is migdal etar. And what it means is the tower of the flock. In fact, it says in Micah in the, in the fourth chapter that the Messiah would come and be between Migdal Adar and Jerusalem in the very fields that we're talking about here. And suddenly, this idea of I'll give you a sign, I'll tell you where he is going to be born. So that when Herod wanted to know the answer to that, the rabbis and the priests were easily ready to give him the answer. Well, Bethlehem of Ephetah. And so it was. They went to look for the babe. But the second thing that really stands out about these shepherds is that they had a particular responsibility and way about going away. In fact, what the, what the Mishnah tells us about it is that when a lamb was born, they would first inspect it to make sure that it was perfect. And then they would wash it and they would have cloths hanging on pegs inside of the cave, the Migdal Ashar, where they raised these sheep and they would wrap the lambs, legs and bodies with these cloths. And it's interesting because the cloths we would think that they're very similar to burial cloths that they used when it talks about wrapping the body of Jesus. It was the same cloths, the same idea. And they would wrap this so that if the lamb were to run into a thing or stumble or fall or do anything, they would have no injury, which would disqualify it. So it had to be perfect. And then they would take it and they would put it inside of a manger. Now, a manger is not as we think about it because in the Middle East, there's very little wood. And so everything is made out of stone. Even, even the stone castles of Europe, uh, the crusaders are the ones who learned to build castles out of stone because in Europe, before they went to the Middle East to take over Israel, was they basically lived in a place full of wood. So all the castles before the crusades were made out of wood. So that we see these stone castles, that was a technology that they had learned 
when they invaded the Middle East and they brought it back to Europe. And so it is today, when, even today, when you look at a lot of the places, especially around Bethlehem, there are not only caves everywhere, which are used as houses, they're used as places for keeping animals. They're like ready-made barns, but they also would be constructed out of stones because there are stones everywhere. That's one of the comments we get when we go to Bethlehem each year and people go, Look at all the stones. Is there any place where there isn't a stone? Well, around Bethlehem, that's all you have. Stones everywhere. And so it was the manger wouldn't be made out of wood because sheep will eat a wooden manger. (laughs) They'll chew it right up. No, they were made out of blocks of stone that will haul it out. And what it was was a feeding trough. But here's the thing that's significant. Stone is also considered in the Jewish religion to be pure and clean. You don't have to wash it, you have to clean it. It's ceremonially pure before God. And so they take the lamb and they would lay it in the manger and let it begin to warm and to grow and gather their strength before they begin to take it out. And then they would carry it until it got strong enough to walk on its own. And so when the angel appears to these men, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to go to the Migdal Adar, the place where Mary and Joseph have ended up because there are no rooms in the, well, inn is really kind of a mistranslation in a way because we don't even know. We kind of suspect there weren't any such thing as inns. You know, there was no holiday inn or anything like that. But what there were were places that would take people in. But if a woman is having a baby, she's going to be shedding blood and that would make that place ceremonially unclean. And so nobody wanted to have a baby inside of their house. (laughs) They would have a baby in a place like a cave that had been turned into into a barn, if you will. And then the child would be cleansed and brought into the home. All of this becomes significant because when he says, you're going to go to the Migdaladar and you're going, to find, you're going to find a baby there. And they're thinking, when did that happen? And when you get there, you're going to find it's wrapped in the same swaddling cloths that were used, that you use when you put it on the sacrificial lamb. And it'll be laying in the manger just as you would lay it in the manger because the one that you're going to see is going to be the savior who's going to save mankind from the sentence of eternal death. And these men hear hear you to that place. And it says when they came and they saw it and they were amazed. And what's even more interesting, it says that then when they went back, as they would take the lambs up to Jerusalem to be used for sacrifice in the temple, that everyone they would tell the story to. I mean, think about it. Do you believe shepherds are sitting on hills all day just letting their imagination go wild? They were probably fantastic storytellers. But then they began to say, let me tell you, angels of God appeared to us and told us that if we would go back to the place where we raised the lambs, we would find a baby who was wrapped like a lamb and he was going to be the savior of the world. And suddenly the story becomes very significant because 
it's not just a place. It's not just a group of people. But rather, these are men who were waiting and looking for the Messiah who would come and save them. And God said that he will have grace on everyone who believes that story and he will show them favor if they believe. That's the significance of this evening and the day that follows. And for those of you who hear the arguments, well, you know, December isn't probably when Jesus was born. We have all these theological discussions. Here's what's really interesting, what the Talmud says. It says that the lambs that were offered on Passover had to be born between December and January, just around this time of year. So we're not just, as Paul said, or excuse me, Peter said that we haven't believed cunningly devised fables. But instead he said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him and we beheld him. And he grew up to become the Messiah and to die on the cross as a payment for my sins. The writer of Hebrews quoting the Old Testament said, God was not satisfied with the sacrifices of bulls and sheep and goats and lambs. So he said, therefore, a body you have given me. The word of God became a man and he dwelt among us. And John writes, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came to his own. Not only did his own not want to acknowledge him, but they didn't want to receive him. And yet even that was a purpose beyond that generation. Because what the prophet Isaiah said, he will become a light to the nations. You know, it's fascinating to me. All those who say, well, the Bible's full of myths and stories, not only does that reveal to me that they have never really studied it and read it and quite honestly are talking out of parts of their body were never used to be verbalized. But they missed the whole point of it all. <laughs> the whole point is that God gave over 333 different signs. One mathematician calculated the odds of just eight of those prophecies, those signs that God said, these are things that will happen when the Messiah comes. He says, what are the odds of that? And he came up with an interesting figure. Not that I can get my mind around it. It was one out of every 100 quadrillion those are really bad. What's, how do you figure that? Well, he gave an illustration. He said, it's like this. Say we cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, and we pile them up two feet high, kind of like the snow in your yard right now. Yeah? And then you take one of those silver dollars, and you paint it red, and you throw it out into the pile, you mix it all up, and then you take a man, you put a blindfold on him and say, now go out, you get one chance to pick the right one. That's one to the 100 quadrillionth odds of something like that happening. 
And you know what's even more amazing is here you and I are today and all over the world people are celebrating this day. Many of them have no idea why. But the reason we're celebrating it because God never wants mankind to forget that he so loved the world that he gave himself. He became a man and he robed himself in our corruptible flesh and he did miracles and he did teaching but all for one purpose that we might know who he is and ultimately so he could die on the cross for your sins for my sins that we might have eternal life because we have believed on him if there's anything that you take away from a time like this is that you begin to understand that God gave himself for you. It's not a make-believe, made-up story. He gave them sign after sign after sign after sign. And he says, what I called you is just believe what I've told you, what I've revealed to you. 